Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is verses 18 to 22 of Psalm 33, which, which is the psalm appointed for today, Saturday, November the 19th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are looking, continuing our look at the book of Malachi today in chapter 3, verse 13 through chapter 4, verse 6. Still in the gospel according to Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, and then also in uh, Hebrew, or sorry, James, <laughs> chapter five, verses thirteen to twenty. Don't know how I got Hebrews out of that. <clears throat> anyway, so we're we're kind of wrapping up the book of Malachi today. He says, "Your words have been hard against me," says the Lord. But you say, "How have we spoken against you?" And and this is so typical, you know. Again, as I've said many times before, that I believe the most difficult work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the uh, a Christian of sin or a believer, let's say, because this is in in the Old Testament. But it, to convict us of sin is a, is a very difficult thing because we tend to have this higher opinion of ourselves than than we ought or have any uh, basis for having. Uh, and so here, that, that's exactly what he's saying, that people, we, we actually kind of forget these things. He says, you've said it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking is in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And it, wow, th- there's a huge truth in that. <laughs> in that, right? I mean, there, it does feel some days like it's vain to serve God, but then here's the question that, that's the most interesting. What profit is there in keeping his charge or walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And there's a huge truth in that, because that's one of the things that, that we look for, is some pragmatic result that's foreseeable or at least um, visible on earth to following him, as though our treasure and our reward was here. And so when we say, what's the profit of keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts, what we're saying is is that, that we don't see any visible effect. There should be a cause and effect relationship, right? It's that belief that if I do the right things, then the right results will occur, and the right results are defined by, well, me. <laughs> and, and they're the things that I want. If I do this, then I get that. And that's not the way it works. And said, so now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So people get away with what they're doing. And it's because we take such a short view of everything. He says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I'll spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So they're, they're taking a short-term approach to measuring the value of faith <laughs> and a life of faith. And what God says, there will come a day, and that day will lead on into eternity when you'll actually see that result. Not today. Not necessarily. I mean, sometimes we, we get what we believe, at least, are blessings because of what we've done. Sometimes those blessings are painful. Sometimes it looks like, well, God's the only one left on my side, but I know that he's on my side. And here what he's saying is, is there's going to come a day, and after that day, 
It'll be clear throughout all eternity what the value of following the Lord is, but the problem is is that our what, what all this says about us is, is that we not only have a short-term uh, idea of, of this, we also, our treasure is our material blessing rather than, than the heavenly reward. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And that this sounds very similar to things that John said. You know, John's the next prophet. Malachi is the last Old Testament prophet. John is the next prophet to appear. And he says these very kinds of things, that he's going to throw them into the fire, and they'll be burned up. Jesus speaks of the same thing when he speaks of hell, and he speaks of um, the, the burning up of the unrighteous, those who have rejected him. And so th- that is a a Jewish principle that gets further elucidated in the Old Testament. So here it seems like a metaphor. Um, but ultimately, what Jesus says, it's not a metaphor. It's a reality. This is exactly what's going to happen. It, it sounds like a metaphor, but but they will be set ablaze. And, it, and the day is coming, and it burns like an oven. And then by the other side of that, he says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And what does the Son, S-U-N, Son, do? Well, it, it's heat and it burns. But what he says is, is that there's this other son, this other kind of son, the son of righteousness, that will come with healing. So some will be burned like an oven and set ablaze. Others, the son of righteousness, will heal them. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will take ashes, be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This is the ultimate judgment of God. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, why would that be a part of the thing? And it's interesting that he chooses that particular thing because it, it one point in uh, Luke's gospel, Jesus talks about, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth. I, co- I came actually to bring division. And the division, he says, will begin at the home. Here, what Malachi says is that, that this one who is going to come, this Elijah who's going to come first, is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. So there'll be a, a restoration of that relationship, and it'll be in the Lord. It's not going to be apart from him. It's not going to be, oh, just an era of good feelings. No, it's going to be the restoration of the proper relationships in the family. And that's exactly what he says that Elijah is going to come to do. But but how is that restoration accomplished? Well, it's accomplished through faith. It's accomplished through Jesus. It's accomplished through the the parents and the children following the Lord and loving the Lord. It's, it's not just a matter of, of simple, happy, clappy, uh, well, we all get along now. No, it's more than that. It's far more than that. In the gospel, it says he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So they, they had a high opinion of themselves, as, as you see in Malachi. You know, they think, oh, okay, so these people are being blessed and they're unrighteous people, but we won't even admit that we're uh, impugning the integrity of God by looking for the blessings in this life. That, that what we call blessed is people who have everything that they want. And what, 
what it's doing is taking this short view of things, and, and it takes, at the same time, a dim view of righteousness. And that's exactly what Jesus is said in, in every single time that he approached or was approached by the Pharisees and the scribes and all those kind of people, that they had this self-righteousness, which is no righteousness at all, because it's based in their own opinion. And what he said is not only is your opinion wrong, but also it's based in the wrong sets of facts. You're missing the important things and focusing on the not unimportant things, but the less important things. Justice and mercy are more important, he says, than, than whether you keep the tithe scrupulously or not, and that's exactly what the Pharisee's going to do. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself off to the side, prayed, uh, prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of everything I get. Well, God, it, in multiple places through the prophets, condemns their fasting because it's done wrongly. And, and this guy's actually pointing out that it's been done wrongly because it's for the applause and the acclaim of men. So when he stands off by himself here, he thinks of himself as better than everybody else, particularly this tax collector that he specifically mentions. And so he, he's singing his own praises before the Lord that I fast twice a week and I give tithes of everything that I get. And, and God's response to that is essentially, as we know through Jesus, is, is well, how nice for you. Because it doesn't impress God. He's not impressed by that at all. These are things that you do that, that you do for a particular reason, and that is to get the acclaim and the applause of men. And you think, then, that those things are the basis on which I consider you to be righteous. Well, you're dead wrong. The weightier matters of the law, Jesus says, are the things that need to be attended to. In addition to those things, he says you do well to tithe, however... You're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. And so th these are the two things that this guy stands and boasts before the Lord in. And what is, what's his problem here? His main problem is the only people he's comparing himself to are other people that he considers to be sinners, extortioners, adulterers, and this scumbag over here, <laughs> this, this tax collector over here. Well, that's not the appropriate measuring stick. We're not judged on some sort of comparative righteousness. No, we're, we're judged based on God's standard of righteousness, period, end of sentence. Not, not are you more righteous than that guy, and, and you've already chosen the people you wanted to compare yourself to, the extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, and, well, this tax collector. Now, the tax collector, Jesus says, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. In other words, he, he had an appropriate um, attitude towards God. He, he refused to lift up his eyes to heaven. He, how dare he do that? No, 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 I'm not worthy that thou should come under my roof, for instance. This is what the, the centurion said to Jesus. Um, as Isaiah said, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, woe is me, I am ruined. Well, the, the Pharisee didn't feel ruined at all. He felt like he could stand before God on equal terms with him. Here, the tax collector won't even lift his eyes. He beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew who he was, and he knew what God was. He's a sinner, and God is merciful, and he pr prays to God based on God's character and his own self-revelation in Exodus 34. He is merciful, and therefore we, we appeal to God's own character and ask him to be um, consonant with 
his character that he revealed. This is who you said you are. I'm appealing to you, and I'm appealing to you based on your character, not on my worthiness. I'm a sinner, period. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. tells us something about the way we should approach the throne of God. And it, that Malachi passage tells us how we are likely to approach the throne of God and how the people did in the day of Malachi and how they did in the day of John the Baptist. That's the reason John has to look at him and call them vipers and hypocrites and all those other things. It's because they uh, don't attend to the weightier matters of the law and they think themselves to be righteous when they come before a holy God. How mistaken is that attitude? And then so in, in Malachi, what they're saying is, hey, there's no benefit to us for following you. So why should we do that? James says, is anyone among you suffering? Well, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. In other words, give thanks to the one who has made you cheerful. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So he's giving very practical advice. If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, give praise. And if you're sick, Ask people to come and pray with you and lay hands on you and and anoint you. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. There's a promise inherent in that, right? That that if we pray for the sick, if we do that in faith, then the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. He gets a twofer. Not only does he get healed from his sickness, he also gets forgiveness. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, I've mentioned this before, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together talked about the principles on which he organized the seminary during uh, the time of not in Nazi Germany until it was uh, disbanded by Hitler and outlawed. Um, and one of the things he said was is that, that people should confess their sins to one another. You should find a brother to whom you can confess your sins. It was an all-male seminary. So you find a brother that you trust and confess your sins to that person, and, and you as the confessor then are to hear those things, to proclaim forgiveness over it, not go gossip about them later. No, they're gone. And, and the reason he said that that was important was you know, it wasn't like a, a Roman Catholic confession. There wasn't some uh, person assigned to do this work and set apart, set apart for it that, that only they could speak for, for the Lord. No, he said that the problem is he realized in his own life that he was confessing things that were actually just horrific when he made his confession to the Lord, but he had no sense of it because he didn't have to confess it to another person. He, he, he recognized that he wasn't thinking about a holy God. He was just you know kind of blowing through it and saying, well, he's merciful, so I'll just confess all these things. And he said, I realized that I didn't have a horror of my own sins, and therefore I was unlikely to actually repent of those things. I, I was continually confessing the same sins because I didn't realize how horrible they were until I said them out loud in front of another person. And that's the reason that he suggested that, but he didn't suggest, he required his students to do that very thing. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. So it's important for us to pray, because he says that it's important for us to seek after righteousness and to confess our sins and to, to move away from those and in the direction of righteousness. He said Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He wasn't set apart and different in the way that Jesus was. So he's pointing us to another human being, a person who was who was not both fully God and fully man at the same time. 
He's pointing to Elijah and saying, hey, this, this guy was a mess, you know. He's the one who bailed out on Israel and took, took off whenever Jezebel said that he was, she was going to kill him. And he took off and, and abandoned the people that he was given to ch- charge over. And he says he was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. So if you can't relate to Jesus and you don't think that that, that power is in human beings, well, go back and look at Elijah then. He was filled with the Spirit. He had a nature like ours. And when he prayed that God would shut the heavens for three and a half years, it didn't. He said, then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So if you're pursuing righteousness, if you're the one standing apart from the crowd, as Elijah did, pointing the way towards the Lord, your prayers will avail much. He's just like Elijah's did. He had great power because he was pursuing righteousness. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You know, it's a funny thing that that if, if somebody wanders from the truth and the other person brings him back, the person who gets the benefit first is the person who's brought back, but then he says there's a benefit to the one who does it as well. It's one of those things that, that when it says that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul, and, and yet most of the time in the church, we, we leave those things as private matters. We don't get involved. Well, I'm not going to go confront that. That's, that's awkward and difficult, and, and, but it needs to be done. As I said, sometimes the hardest thing in the world is for the Holy Spirit to convict a, a believer of sins, and, and sometimes what's required in that situation is for us to take action and speak on behalf of the Holy Spirit and by behalf of righteousness and call somebody back from where they are. I can remember uh, a very popular and well-known Christian singer, maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that, started having an adulterous affair, and she was in a small group with, so I'm just probably giving away the game there, but anyway, for some people at least, so she was in a small group with a, with a sister of a friend of mine. And when she found out about it, the sister, she went and confronted the person and told her she was just dead wrong. Well, it ended the friendship, but she did the right thing. Doesn't matter. She, she was not a respecter of persons. She cared about the church. She cared about God's kingdom. And this was going to bring dishonor and disrepute unto God's kingdom. And this person needed to repent of it, not continue in, continue in that sin. They continued in the sin, by the way. But we have an obligation to the kingdom of God to step into those situations, and and we should love our brothers and sisters enough to do that very thing. doesn't mean we need to be busybodies, but whenever something comes to our attention that's sin and the person's continuing in it, then we, we need to have the strength of character and courage to step in and, and speak that after we've prayed about it. Did the Lord tell me to go do this? And, and yes. He did, then I go speak into that, just as Paul did when he wrote to the church in Corinth and called them to account for what they were tolerating in their midst. Paul wasn't going to tolerate it at all. They shouldn't have been. And so it's important for us not to be self-righteous in these situations. That's a really important thing, is, is to, to do this in humility and love. You know, it's not to say, hey, you're, you're a worse sinner than I am, therefore I can speak these things to you. No, it's not that self-righteousness that allows us to do that. No, it's just I'm a sinner broken like you are. And this thing is a, is a public matter, at least at some level. If I know about it, then it's a public matter. Then, then I need to speak into that, and I need to try and call that person back. 
from their sin into God's righteousness. In order to protect the name of the church and to protect the name of God, we can't tolerate sin. It's not the way the kingdom works. It's not good for the other person. It's definitely not good for the church or the kingdom of God. So we need to humbly deal with sin in our own lives, but we also need to humbly deal with sin in our midst.